0: If you've had automating your ASP.NET deployments on your to-do list, now's a great time to give Octopus Deploy a try. The starter edition lets you install Octopus on your own infrastructure and deploy to IIS web servers, Azure websites, and pretty much anything from Node to Kubernetes, and they just made it free for small teams. Give your team a single place to release, deploy, and operate software with Octopus Deploy. Find out more at octopus.com. .NET
1: Rocks is being sponsored today by Text Control, the company behind TX Text Control, a Microsoft Word-inspired document editor library and document processing engine for your applications. TX Text Control is fully customizable and programmable and is available for most platforms, including ASP.NET MVC, Web Forms, WPF, and Windows Forms. Recently, they released their Angular and Node.js versions that allow the integration of WYSIWYG document editing into your web apps. TX Text Control really shines in applications that do mail merging and reporting where Microsoft Word compatible templates are merged with JSON data in the client or pure server-side applications that create Adobe PDF documents. So, try TX Text Control for free and see the live demos at textcontrol.com/demos.
2: Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell.
0: And uh, I'm coming to you this week from a hotel room in San Diego, uh, just about to start the Pacific Coast leg of the Blazer Road Show. Awesome. Starting tonight in San Diego, tomorrow in LA. This is obviously back in March, yeah. March 2nd. Time shifted. A little time shift. But uh, the man, it's just going great going gangbusters. Having um, a good time. Having a good time.
2: How are you, man? I am well, you know, and and fun to be the engineer for these shows while you're bombing around on the road. I'm actually home at the moment.
0: Yeah, that's cool. I, You know, I haven't, we haven't, you and I haven't done a road trip since... 2013. 2013? Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of fans out there and um, hearing from a lot of them and hearing their stories and... Usually the story is the same, like, you know, you guys helped my career tremendously. And so, uh,
2: yeah, it's, it's just nice to hear these stories in person. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's been cool. And I, I'm, I'm even getting guests now on Run As that are like, you know, 10 years ago, I heard your show and thought, I'm going to get into a career in IT and someday I'm going to get on that show. And there they are.
0: It's <laughs> fun. Well, I'm really psyched to have Rocky Latka back on the show. And my Better Know Framework today Interestingly, ties into what we're talking about. So let's roll the crazy music. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? So less than an hour ago, Richard and I got an email from somebody at opensilver.net. Hmm. And this being Monday, March 2nd, uh, it says that this is launching... Uh, March 9th. But, so but we're not should,
2: publishing till April, so the, we're the site until will April, be different. So it should
0: be yeah. Should be available now. Right. OpenSilver.net is a WebAssembly re-implementation of Silverlight. Wow. So Silverlight XAML and C sharp code running on WebAssembly.
2: That's really interesting. I mean obviously you already, already have C sharp running in WebAssembly. That's Blazor, but <laughs> of course the 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 big thing will be bringing XAML into WebAssembly. Well, right. That's a lot of code.
0: Well, the component model is not Silverlight. Like it you know, it's more classic yeah, sure. C sharp events and that kind of stuff. So I actually think the component model is what makes Blazor really amazing. Yeah. So uh, you know, if you have Silverlight apps that you're still supporting, uh, support from Microsoft is gonna end in October twenty twenty one. Right. And so, you know, it's a good time to jump. Uh, would I bet the farm on staying with uh, Silverlight XAML and something like this? Probably not, but it might might work and it might be a good stopgap.
2: Yeah, it's just, you know, folks don't want to rewrite apps. They just don't have a lot of interest around it. Then these are just ways to keep things alive for longer. Not True. have to keep depending on IE11, which has stopped development. Right. Although there's now an IE11 runtime inside the new Edge Chromium version. And this is all <laughs> IT thinking, like the number of enterprise apps that are dependent on specific versions of IE, like mm. dependent on IE7. And so you, yeah. sh- you run IE11 and you can still flag, this is, should be running an IE7 mode and it will. Mm. So Silverlight sort of falls into that category now.
0: Crazy. Well, uh, Rocky is here patiently listening. What do you think? Had you heard of opensilver.net?
3: I had not, not until this call and and this recording. So I'm kind of excited, though, because I think anything that uh, helps boost WebAssembly and the popularity, uh, you know, you look at uh, Uno, the Uno platform that Mm -hmm. does UWP XAML or the the Wii platform uh, or project that does uh, Xamarin Forms XAML. Uh, plus Blazer, and and I would hope that we start to see all sorts of UI frameworks from um, other language, you know, uh, Rust, Go, Java, um, you know, UI frameworks in those spaces because I'm convinced that the future for for most of us, the future of client side development is in fact, uh, you know, WebAssembly based one way or another. I believe you. Yeah, right. The, the browser, instead of relying on...
0: Well, as I mentioned in Chris Love's show, and by the way, I'm sure I sound a lot better today than I did in that show, because I listened to uh, stuff I recorded with that headset, that Logitech headset. Man, that sucks.
2: You weren't happy. Sorry,
0: Sorry about that. But anyway, um, there's a project called WASI, W-A-S-I, that has an aim to run WebAssembly outside the browser. And so that's interesting stuff as well. So I don't know. Well, I'm I'm pretty happy about it. But I want to let uh, this show not devolve into another Blazer love fest. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's get on with it, shall we? Who's talking to us?
2: Let's grab your comment off of show 1620, the one we did with one Rockford Lock. Uh, maybe you've heard of him. Talking about migrating the .NET standard. That's back in January of 2019. And, uh, yeah. of course, we talked a lot about... Maintaining older apps, right? Getting, making... Yep. I think uh, if there's one message, I think, that came out of that show a year ago, it was just get yourself to the latest version of, of .NET. Right. Even, whether you're mov- thinking about moving to core or not, if you're at the latest version of .NET, you're going to be a good place for whatever help it happens next. Sure. And, uh, and Mark Rossi said, very relevant to our current conversation, I found when trying to move older, large applications that have dozens or hundreds of screens to a more recent version of .NET that it's usually more effective to rethink the way the app was built in the first place rather than migrate it as is. Oftentimes, the business model has changed. Most of the controls in the forms aren't even used, and some of the technical decisions don't make sense anymore. Supporting the application as it stands brings very little return on investment. Inevitably, of course, in 10 to 15 years, the next generation developers will be doing the same migration from .NET standard to whatever the next .NET is. So yeah, we're always going to be up again. I mean, if you get 10 years out of a piece of software without major changes, that's incredible. Uh, Yeah. Every 10 years, at least you're getting significant platform shifts where the, you know, you think about 10 years ago, web was relatively new and mobile was almost nowhere. Now mobile is everywhere. Like it's, it's a lot. So, Mark, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of mister to by is on its way to you. And if you'd like a copy of to co Co-Buy, write a comment on the website at dotnetrocks.com or on the Facebooks because we publish every show there. And if you comment there and I read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of to co by.
0: And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell and I'm at Carl Franklin. Send us a tweet. No plug-ins there.
2: <laughs>
0: All right. And with that, let me formally reintroduce for the, I don't know how many of the time, Rocky Lotka. Rockford is the CTO at Magenic, one of the nation's premier Microsoft Gold certified partners dedicated to solving today's most challenging business problems. He's the creator of the widely used CSLA.net open source development framework and is Microsoft regional director and MVP. He, of course, speaks at many conferences and user groups around the world and occasionally comes on our show and talks about very cool things welcome back rocky
2: great to be here again this would be your 22nd episode friend good lord yeah wow seriously yep that, that's pretty cool uh from show 8 in October of 2002 to now in April of 2020 that's uh you know 17 and a half years hmm
0: and you haven't uh, jumped ship to Java programming yet. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: not personally, although the Magenic has uh, radically expanded into the Java space, but I, sure. I personally am uh, still a, a kind of a a.NET focused person. I'm, so. I'm,
2: sh- I'm sure that's a demand issue, right? Especially at the enterprise level. Like they're struggling to find Java programmers these days.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is. It's, yeah. It's uh, recruiting is challenging mm-hmm. and. Yeah, we, we shifted our focus over the last couple of years to be very much around cloud, you know, Azure, AWS, Kubernetes. Mm. And if, if you say that your focus is cloud, uh, really that means .NET Core, but it means Java and it probably means Node. And so those are the three primary platforms that we do because those seem to be the dominant platforms. If somebody says, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go to the cloud and they're and they're building their own code, then that's going to be Java on Linux containers. Well, that's true. And interestingly enough, pretty much all of our .NET core work is on Linux containers also. Right, of course. Well, I just don't think the Windows containers are there yet still. No, and I'm kind of of the opinion that even when they do arrive as a stable option, that their real focus is on legacy software. Yeah, like, I think you're you right. Know, I, I need to lift and shift... Um, a .NET Framework um, website or something, right? Uh, into a container because my new infrastructure is container based, uh, and the only way to do that is on a Windows container. Mm-hmm. But if I'm building something new with .NET Core, uh, re- realistically, especially if you're building cloud focused or cloud native code, mm-hmm. you really, really do not care what the underlying operating yeah. system is, and and. and- So then why wouldn't you pick the most stable container option? Yeah, best known, most mature,
2: best instrumented, and for the most part, smallest too. Yeah. Yeah. They've done a lot to to make Windows containers smaller, but they are still not smaller than an Ubuntu implementation.
0: Well, we're here to talk about the latest CSLA.net and uh, the 20 or so times we've talked about it, we need to first introduce it or maybe reintroduce it to the listeners. Just tell us about what it is, how it started, and uh, then we'll talk about what you've got lately in CSLA.
3: CSLA, I, I think of it as being a home for your business logic. Mm-hmm. The yeah, you know, the world that we live in has all sorts of frameworks to create UIs, and it has all sorts of frameworks to talk to databases. And there are very few frameworks or, or um, foundational structures to organize your business logic so that it is maintainable over time, consistent and, uh, ideally reusable, uh, you know, behind different kinds of user experience. And all of that, that is the goal of CSLA uh, at at its core is to be a rules engine and also a, a coding pattern that you can follow to create business logic that is independent of any particular data access technology and is independent of any particular UI framework.
0: And it's uh, originally from a book that you wrote, uh, uh, an object-oriented VB book, right? And then it's open (laughs) source and it has evolved
3: uh, all on its own, right? Yeah, it started back actually in the VB5, VB4 days, something like that, back in... 1995, 96 is the, when the kind of kernel of the ideas crystallized. And of course it's been rewritten, uh, for dot net and, and, uh, ported to C sharp and, and, uh, I, I continue to write books about it. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it really was an outgrowth of writing some books way back about, how to build enterprise software originally with VB and COM, And then in the early days of.net. Right. And
0: so we all write business logic and try to keep it away from the other tiers as much as we possibly can. But you've got some really cool features in there that support, you know, um, binding and undo. And uh, there's just some really good stuff in there that, that makes it appealing to anyone now, of course, because it can go anywhere and work with any kind of, you know, .NET core or .NET. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So what are some of those other little feature nuggets inside CSLA.net that make it
3: really appealing? I think the big thing that most people find value is that if you use CSLA to create your business logic, then you can data bind to uh, ASPMVC front end or to a Razor Pages front end or a UWP front end or now to a Blazor or Uno front end in WebAssembly. And your code is unaffected, your your business logic.
0: Right. So you have a different layer for each one of those user interfaces that you can just swap in, interface-based kind of thing?
3: CSLA implements all of the standard or what used to be standard data binding interfaces from Microsoft
2: mm-hmm. back
3: in the windows forms, web forms, MVC, uh, WPF days. <laughs> and, and I say back in those days, but mm-hmm. let's face it, that's where, you know, an awful lot of code still, you know, does that. All um, right. These days, Microsoft has largely moved away from those formal interfaces and is using uh, newer, better, at least different approaches to, to do their data binding. And what CSLA does is uh, mitigates any differences between the way those data binding interfaces used to be used or the way that they are or are not used in current UI frameworks. So, uh, again, the idea being that you write your business logic and, and create your, uh, domain models using an object oriented, essentially a domain driven design philosophy. And, you know, we were talking about how code changes over time and, and, uh, the idea, um, from, from the, you know, the caller, uh, mess you know, earlier in this recording, mm-hmm. Uh, earlier in this show uh, about how oh, every 10 or 15 years you have to throw everything away and start over. Mm. And I agree that at the UI level, that's almost certainly true, right? I mean, <laughs> the way we used to think about user experiences, you know, 10 or 15 years ago compared to today is quite different. I was thinking about making a and coffee table book of
2: all of the previous versions of .NET mm-hmm. sample apps Mm. hmm yeah yeah yeah. i've collected a bunch of screenshots and stuff some of them are horrible i mean uh, what were we
0: thinking you should just add them to your uh upcoming coffee table book history of dot net yeah
2: it's not gonna be that it's not gonna be a coffee table book you're gonna read it on on kindle but i'm talking about a coffee table book like a big format so you can really see the screens yeah but i don't know if anybody would buy that pretty cool it'd be bizarre (laughs) <laughs> really what it should what I should do is round them all up and run them on a website so that you could literally go and play with each of like the Fitch and Mather demos and things. It's just like this is what we used to think
3: software should look like right. <laughs> yeah what's interesting though, and, and this is bringing it back to the, the idea of, of a consistent uh, business rules and, yeah. and business domain level is that for all that our UI expectations change, business itself does not change very fast. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And and I know that flies in the face of a lot of convention. You know, early in my career, I was always told, oh man, you developers are slowing us down. Business moves at the speed of whatever and software developers are slowing us down. But what I've realized over my career is that the, the company that I worked for at that time when I heard that, uh, still does the same thing today that it did 30 years ago. They still have customers. They still take orders. They still deliver concrete ready mix. Uh, you, you know, their their business has not, in fact, changed in any meaningful way. And I would bet you that their business rules have not changed because, like the the realities of um, mixing concrete and delivering it, uh, it's just not something that changes. Yeah, but there. I mean, there are. I would think the main thing is that they
2: resonate at different rates, right? There are new tax rules. You may, you know, incorporate back ordering or you've gone omni-channel for distribution. Those are changes that change business rules versus, Hey, we're using tablets now in the field. Re-render the right. UI to work in a tablet. Like they're very different things. They both need to be modified, but I, I agree with you that the chances of you need, <laughs> like, I think the statement that the, the caller made, and I like that term because it's so radio, um, the, you know, throwing it away. It's like, no, nah, if you've got the rules well contained, a
3: lot of those rules are going to come forward. Yeah, that's exactly my thought. Yeah. And, and I think that's where, it, it, yeah, and, and Carl made the comment that most of us do, you know, keep these things separate. Uh, but in my observation, that's actually not true. Mo- most people are not actually good at keeping separate. Yeah. And most people end up writing a lot of their business logic and business rules, um, directly in the UI or in controllers or places where business logic does not belong. And then when they do have to move to a different UI framework, uh, their stock, right? Because right. their business logic got merged into the UI and that's probably, probably the single biggest thing that CSLA, And and this isn't even um, a a technical feature of CSLA. This is just like the architecture strongly encourages you to keep all your business rules and business logic in a separate business layer that is not in the UI. Some of the newer features in CSLA uh, include analyzers that, in fact, are, are looking for common patterns where people leak business logic into their UI and it Mm -hmm. comes up with a warning and says, really, you should be putting that, you know, in, in your business layer. So
0: anybody who's ever tried to, and I know I have done this before separate out business rules from UI and from data access for that matter, um, eventually gets to this place where, Oh, I need to have something that does X, you know, I need to have multiple layers of undo, for example, You know, I'm editing an object, and I'm bound to it, and then I hit the cancel button. I want that object to go back to where it was before we started messing with it. Just simple things like that. And that's where something like csla.net really shines. You've got these great features that just exist in the realm of business logic, yet they do things that, obviously, because of binding to the UI, uh, end up being really, really valuable
3: and not and not easy to do. That is the goal. I, pra- pragmatically, over time, my objective with CSLA has always been to solve common, repeatable problems, like, yeah. like you're talking about, Carl, where you know we run into these problems over and over again, and then we have right. to solve them. And so, why don't we wrap that solution up and put it somewhere so we can just reuse that that solution? And so CSLA offers a set of solutions to a set of common problems. Some people look at, at the solutions in CSLA and they're like, Ooh, I don't like the way it works. I, I, I would do it totally different. And, and I get that because, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the way our world okay. works. But, um, yeah, they're free to create a framework that implements their solution. Right. Um, but I, I picked a set of solutions to these common problems and uh, and i say i yeah. Uh, you know, in the early days it was just me but these days there's so over almost 90 people that have contributed to csla and wow at any given point in time there's usually a core active group of five six people that are contributing you, know, you have people come and go over their career but sure that's it's really cool i mean this open source uh Having a vibrant open source community is so much fun.
0: (laughs) One of our, I got to tell you this, one of our AppianX developers and a good friend, Brian, said, please tell Rocky I read his entire business objects book and then wrote my own ORM and it changed my career. I I was much higher level after that. He said, "Um, that ORM was the biggest larval stage of my career. I worked on that with very little sleep for a long time. It was pretty good, still in use here and there, and that was back when ORMs were fairly new. And his book was written in VB.
3: That is so cool, and, and I'm uh, so happy that it boosted his career. And, and I mean, I, I just love to hear that. Anything that makes people's lives better, that's good.
2: Yeah, yeah. You kind of dominate the contributions to CSLA, oddly enough, but you know, he's, there's a <laughs> there's a non-trivial number of, commu- of contributors, over 40. But Mm -hmm. it's that first dozen or so that have made many contributions. It's really interesting. It
3: does show people really working on the project with you. I take it you're looking at the uh, GitHub repo. I am. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and it's nice the way GitHub tracks that. Yeah. Um, There's, uh, I've got a link off one of the sites or one of the pages in the CSLA um, site family that links off, and I don't remember what it's called now, Black Duck Software or something. Um, there's another org out there that monitors repos and collects and analyzes data. And it's really cool. And it's also for CSLA. It's particularly cool because I've been working on CSLA longer than Git has been around. Right. And so that other site um has accumulated and tracked data back from when i was using um cvs and then subversion and now git <laughs> mm. and that, that's that's when i say there's like uh, 80 contributors over time um that includes people from you know 20 years ago or something so before github knew about them for sure
2: a uh, black duck is used by any big company like Microsoft uses them and so forth. They're the tool you use to make sure that the uh, your contributors aren't taking other people's code, right? It's it's really an auditing tool that it, you know where all the code that's in your open source project came from if it's not original work. And, and long before GitHub did its own, um, vulnerability analysis, which I really like, you know, you get an email from GitHub on a regular basis saying, Hey, you're not current on this version. There's a problem with that. All the libraries that you're depending on in a given project. Black Duck was doing that. Like, I, I can't recommend them enough. They're the, they're really kind of an important site if you've got serious production open source software. Well, then I'm,
3: I'm glad I brought them up. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. Cause, you know, as long as we're talking about like, like long histories of stuff. Yeah. Um, one of the uh, people that I work with at Magenic uh, ran across this thing called Gorse. G-O-U-R-C-E. Uh, and it, you can install this and, and then run it against any Git repo that you've got cloned on your local machine. And it creates this animation that shows how the source um, got contributed to and grew over time. Oh my goodness. It's so cool. And um, with something, it, it works really well for projects that are, you know, maybe a th- two, three, four years old. I ran it on CSLA and I had to really tweak with the timings because I don't think they had thought through the idea that somebody might have. Because um, I, I think I imported as much stuff into GitHub as I could. Right. So I think that my source control goes back to 2002 or 2004 or something like that. And, um, so I had to speed their animation up is what I'm saying to make it cool. <laughs> it's just so long, you know, but it is, it's such a really, it's neat, especially if you've got a, a larger project with a lot of contributors or a lot of, uh, um, where you've changed the structure of your repo over time. Sure. Um, it, it, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's mesmerizing very to watch cool. the. The animation.
2: Yeah, I can think of a few projects I'd like to run a tool like that on. Of course, yeah, I mean, We're in the same boat as you with Donerox like If you want to find out how good your your podcast player is, point at the master feed of .NET Rocks. Here comes 1,700 episodes. Hope you're ready. <laughs> and speaking of lots of things, uh on NuGet, there are 60
0: packages returned for CSLA. Oh, my goodness. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so help us. Understand which ones we need.
3: Yeah. So, so CSLA, I, I, in the early days of, uh, NuGet, I don't think there was a real good standard, or, or at least I did, we were not aware as a, the CSLA dev team of any sort of standard. So we started naming things CSLA all uppercase, um, and then a dash and then whatever the module was the so csla core is like the the rules engine it's the the core of csla so no matter
0: what ui you're using you have to get csla core
3: no matter what you have to have csla core and then there's all sorts of helper satellite pro- um packages that like if you're doing a, a, a wpf app there are some helper types that will make your life nicer or if you're using Entity Framework, there are some helper types that will make your life nicer. Then they're optional, but you can use those. And so then you start to think, well, there's Windows Forms and WPF and Web Forms and uh, MVC and Silverlight and uh, UWP and Blazor. Right, and and so you end up and Entity Frameworks. You know, like I think right now we do four, five, six, and Core uh, plus Direct some helpers for direct SQL. Uh, So basically all of these satellite assemblies, you end up with a bunch of, I think we build like 40 projects at this point. Okay. And then when we really focused on migrating everything into .NET Core, by now NuGet has this really nice convention where basically your uh, top level namespace is your package name. And so the, all those old CSLA dash, whatever packages, those mm-hmm. are all completely outdated at this point. Oh. And all, all the ones that are a capital C and then lowercase SLA. Um, and so the, the, the CSLA core is in fact now called just CSLA. That's the package name. Okay. And then there's like CSLA dot blazer and CSLA dot entity framework core.
0: All right, so you need three. Ultimately, you need CSLA, which is the sort of the middle stuff, and you need one for your UI helper, and then one for your backend helper. Is that right? Yeah, pretty much. So three packages.
3: But there, you know, thanks to the way NuGet works, like if you're building um, uh, a WPF app, you would just reference CSLA.WPF. And the it'll bring in the CSLA core because it's a dependency, uh, right? Okay, sure, it. yeah. So, you, you know, you actually, for the most part, you just go, oh, I'm building a Xamarin Forms app, so I'll bring in, you know, the CSLA.Xamarin.Forms. Right. Um, And then, you know, that's your client, and then you're probably building an app server somewhere. And so then you would, because that's running on ASP.NET, you'd bring in the CSLA.ASP.NET core package there. Right. And then your third project in your solution is going to be your business, your class library. Pro- probably, ideally, today at least would be a .NET standard class library. And so there you would just bring in CSLA itself. Right. Because it's you don't dad. need any helpers because that's your business logic. Right. And for better or
2: worse, of course, you, you still got like that. The old sales, core is the most downloaded one of them all for obvious reasons. So mm. you've got your right. you've got legacy effects happening here, Rocky. <laughs> totally.
3: Well, it was a big deal. And we, you know, I just, uh, my kind of the core developer community, and then also with the broader CSLA community on the forum before, um, renaming all the packages. Cause that's a disruptive thing, right? Yeah, Sure. Um, but uh, the overwhelming consensus was that for, you know, at some point you got to bite the bullet. Yeah. It's only going to get worse uh, over time. Yep. Yep. And, and, you know, so, but it is, it's painful and it's a source of constant questioning when people, um, go from, you know, see the old CSLA to, to CSLA five and they're like, Hey, how do I get to CSLA five? There's no. You know, get doesn't show an upgrade for it. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, you actually have to manually remove the old package and add in the new one. So, and then they're like, ah, what are you doing (laughs) to me? Exactly. It's like, okay, it's, Uh, I feel, I feel bad for you. And yet, you know. Yeah. We did this for a reason. And guys,
2: I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode
0: of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Datadog, a real-time monitoring platform that unifies metrics, logs, and distributed request traces from your cloud containers and orchestration software. Track the health and performance of your dynamic containers, apps, and services with rich visualizations and machine-learning-driven alerts. Datadog's new cluster agent streamlines data collection from large container clusters and allows you to auto-scale Kubernetes workloads based on any metric you're already collecting with Datadog. To start monitoring your container clusters, sign up for a free trial today, and Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Visit dd.netrocks.com to get started.
2: And we're back. It's .NET Rocks. This is Richard Campbell. That's Carl Franklin. We're talking to our friend Rocky Laka on his 22nd show uh, over 17 years, uh, and uh, digging into CSLA 5.1, and I see Blazer support. How you, fee- you? You've already said earlier, like you you
3: you think the browser is going to win all the things. You like Blazer server side? I do, and I'm surprised at that because I was. My, my enthusiasm for Blazor to start with was all about WebAssembly and being able to run stuff in the client. Mm-hmm. And, but of course, as, as you get into it, you rapidly discover that the debugging experience is horrific. Mm. And so then I, I basically what, I, what I've come to after using this for some months now in, in, in depth, cause I, I just wrote a book on this whole thing. Um, is that they're the same server side blazer, client side blazer, especially if you're keeping clean separation, like we've been talking about with your right. business logic and whatnot. Um, you, you literally can write the same code and then share it. And I've got a chapter in the book that talks about that. And I think Carl's got a blog post that I saw yeah. that talks about, um, you know, creating a, all your UI in one project and then, um, you know, putting it into a server-side and client-side project. Yep. Um, and that's the only way I work now because that way I've got the full server-side debugging, but if I want to run it and take advantage of the CPU and memory on the client right. and get all that scalability, it, you know, no problem, right?
0: I also love the component model probably more than I love the idea of running stuff in a browser. The component model that works on both Sides has simplified, greatly simplified things like events and binding. And the way that works is just so elegant. I mean, just compared to standard C sharp, right? Try to, you know, make an object that raises an event in C sharp and there's a few steps. This is just here's my event, here's what I'm passing. Um, And then it's just so beautiful i don't know am i overreacting rocky <laughs> do you think it's really no, that no i i amazing? agree with
3: you and um I, I, I agree it it is a very well architected composable ui model that is probably the best that microsoft has you know if you if you look back at windows forms web forms um uwp wpf um mm. yeah you know, some of them Enabled the concepts, uh, you know, like like XAML in particular, the, the, they built the tools that would allow you to do this, but it wasn't really built into the box. Right. Right. And here with Blazor, they just said, yeah, we're, we're not only going to give you the tools to do it, but we're actually going to base our entire framework on this model of composability. Yeah. And it's absolutely awesome because now I feel... Um, super comfortable, of course, using the component model because Microsoft's using it. Blazer itself uses it. Right. And so it's not like it's an add-on or an afterthought. Right. I was just talking to a... Yeah, fan. And,
0: like I said, they've just simplified. They've taken out every little bit of ceremony that you could possibly have in a, in a component model and they just concentrated on making you productive without having to do a lot of extra stuff. And it's not... Lacking for any kind of features, as far as I can tell.
3: I agree. No, and 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 this affected the way that the CSLA Blazer, uh, you know, like like I said earlier, every all these different UI frameworks would create a satellite assembly or, or or a package in NuGet for CSLA to just kind of smooth over the rough edges for, and uh, it it affected the CSLA Blazer package in two ways one there aren't actually that many rough edges hmm. um and then two the CSLA's rules engine is way richer than simple error type validation there's a lot of things that CSLA offers from a rules perspective right. i guess hmm. as you would hope for something that's all about business logic and in inversion 5 like and quite completely mature Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, stuff's been around and used in some very big organizations Mm -hmm. for a long time now. Yeah. So, but the, the blazer component model made it easy to, uh, create helpers in the CSLA blazer package that are designed with the intent that you will wrap and create your own reusable components. And so, like in my reference app, the project tracker sample for CSLA, um, like I've got a, uh, an edit, uh, like a text edit control or component is the correct term now. Like I keep using the word control, but I do uh, too. Component. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's and just cause component. you're old. You're all old. 20, ah. 20 years of saying control yeah.
0: is kind of oh. hard to uh, yeah. break.
3: You're all but, old, yeah. You know, so it encapsulates. It's like, oh yeah, here's you know an HTML you know text input that is wrapped with all of the uh, um authorization and validation and and other business rule helpers that CSLA offers. So it's a super rich component um that you can just use everywhere, right? It's like, oh, that is so cool. And then um. At least the way that I tend to create all my data entry forms is in a table, an HTML table, right? And so then I've created a uh, an input text row uh, component mm-hmm. that has you know column one is the uh, label, which also comes out of the because um, it can be localized and globalized inside the CSLA, so it pulls that text out and puts that in row column one and then puts the composes this uh really nice text input control into your c- component <laughs> uh into <laughs> column 2 and yeah. it, it's just it makes like when you go to create a data entry page in blazor then you just have one h you know one element in your markup that says hey i need a, a text input row and yeah. you know quote unquote magic happens but it's not really magic because you can like just w- easily walk through these components, these UI components and go, Oh, I see how they work. And, and then you can tweak them if you want to have a different, you know, UI look, feel or whatever. Right. I, so, I love the composability. Uh, that's really what I'm getting at is that it, it's, uh, you know, Blazor en- enabled some scenarios that, that we did similar things with SAML. Mm, and I love so XAML. hard though. It, but. It's so much easier, <laughs> <laughs> right? I know.
0: Just the data binding syntax in XAML to do things that should be easy—that's where I get. That's where I get stuck in XAML, in WPF especially. But um, the input text control that Blazor has uh, subclassed the the standard um, DOM input element, and they added stuff for validation and uh, created this edit form component that sort of contains the form that will do the validation and stuff. Does that interfere with CSLA's validation, or do you work nicely uh, with that? I mean, if somebody's got a Blazor form that already has an edit form, are you going to... How does that interaction happen with CSLA?
3: There are are two things that, so I went down this road of not using the edit form and instead following more of a view model approach. Okay. And, um, and I really like what that, that approach, although um, I think there are ways to improve it and I'm sure it'll evolve over time. And then uh, another CSLA contributor uh, was like, yeah, 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 Rocky, but you really should support the edit form. And I'm like, ah, you know, my enthusiasm is not real high. So he went and and built all the stuff to support edit forms with CSLA. Okay. And basically you replace the standard attribute or tag that's in the edit form for data annotations with a CSLA component. And then all of the validation message uh, elements that you put in, you put CSLA validation element in there. And it does all the same stuff that the uh, standard one does. Plus it ties in with all of the more advanced rules engine capabilities of CSLA. Got it. Awesome. So, so you basically nice. you get to use exactly the same thing. You just use two replacement and, and this is kudos to the blazer team because they had clearly intended this to be extendable. I like guess. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I was just thinking about, there's
2: only so many chances you get to build a new framework around a, an environment like this. And Microsoft's done it a bunch of times. And then, I mean, we know, when we know a bunch of the team members that worked on Blazor, too. So, I, you know, the good news is they've taken learnings from every interpretation and platform they've built to build this one. And it shows how clean and
3: lean and extensible it Mm-hmm. So to your point, Carl, um, even though I really went down this MVVM road and and uh, I like it a lot, eh, the reality is that the edit form is awfully clean. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> true. It it is a really nice model, and and you just drop in these two replacement uh, elements for CSLA validation instead of the. The standard stuff, and and you get ex, you know the same basic experience. Just again with all of the the because you know, I keep saying it's more advanced, but like so, CSLA does errors, warnings, and information messages. Yes. Um. And so the CSLA validation tags just make all that happen. Yeah, that's nice. So in your MVVM with Blazor,
0: so first of all, just to tell people who haven't experienced it yet. If you just create a standard Blazor app, you get pages with, you get pages and those pages can have these at code blocks. And so you can essentially have you know, your markup at the top of the page and then a code block at the bottom of the page where you can have your you know event handlers and whatever code you want. You can uh, override some of the component base. Virtual methods, you know, for the lifecycle management stuff, and you can also create a a code behind, for lack of a better word, a code behind class that just like you know you can do in other frameworks, and other UI frameworks. So with that code behind class, now you it, it's not really MVVM, is it? Because you've got the event hooks and all of that stuff, all of those things how does one MVVM eyes a blazer page?
3: The way I chose to do it is that you, at the top of the page, you inject a view model for a specific type of model. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this works because CSLA models, um, if you do it correctly, your CSLA domain model types already are, are designed to support the UI. Yeah. Uh and so yes, yeah, so you just inject a view model um of your business you know, your domain type. Mm-hmm. And then you can bind to it throughout the page because including events, methods, everything else, because the <laughs> the, the way that Blazor's binding works is so flexible. Right. Uh yeah, you because know, you know, like an event, uh, uh, an on-click event from a button. Yes, it can bind to a handler that's written in that code block, right. but it could just as easily bind to a method that is implemented in your view model.
0: Hmm. So your view models still contain those um, event parameters, then the event callback types. So I mean, the, the thing that we didn't like about
3: um, no behind in windows the, forms. Am I that you don't am necessarily No, you don't. And, and in fact, um, the, the view model base type that CSLA provides doesn't have that kind of a, a dependency. Because oh, nice. Like, um, at the edit form, the, um, so like a click event doesn't have any parameters. Right. Right. For a, for a button click, but like the edit form, um, sends the edit context, but it doesn't have to, because you can actually handle it. And, and this makes your UI markup a little more complex, but the event handler for any event in, in your markup can mm. in fact be a, uh, Lambda expression. Okay. No, yeah. Nice. That's so, right. You can do that. So right. then you can ignore, if you don't need the edit context, which again, depending on how you're doing this, in a lot of cases, you don't in fact really need that parameter. Right. Uh, Then you just don't pass it through to the view model because the view model won't use it or doesn't, won't accept it. Right.
0: Right. Right. So for example, if you have a, a select tag and some option tags in there, which is essentially a list box with items and in that you have like an on change handler, you wouldn't say unchanged at change equals and then some method that's in, you know, that takes the change
3: event args, let's say, or would you? No, you would create a lambda. So you would say on, um, the onChanged would take, um, would direct to a lambda and the lambda has to accept that parameter. Got it. But then the lambda expression is usually it's a one liner, right? It's like open right. parenthesis um, E for your args, you know, mm. close parentheses, uh, the forward arrow, Yeah. Uh, you know, e- equals and, and, um, and then your method call that you really wanted to call. Um, and then maybe you pull the, uh, value out of the UI specific right. args, but the method expects an int or something.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: That's very cool. It is. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, this is where the, like, like you were saying, the, the XAML binding, to do that in XAML data binding. Oh, yeah. Would have required a lot of work. Yeah. You got to call Billy and, Hollis for that. <laughs> I, in fact, I'm, I'm having a hard time mentally picturing how well. you would, in fact, do it. it. It was a lot of work. Um, and in the <laughs> Blazor model, you know, because of the, the just, they're running a C sharp, just, just a little bit of C sharp code, right? right? And so. You have full access to just here's the method name or here's a lambda or, you know, whatever you want to do. So it's so flexible.
0: So how does CSLA.net work with third party components? Um, You know, DevExpress is sponsoring this roadshow, this Blazor roadshow. And, you know, they have grids and schedulers and charts and things like that. And would you foresee any kind of problems interfacing with third-party
3: Blazor components like that? To be honest, I have not tried any particular um, third-party components, but my I, I feel comfortable saying that the answer is it will not be a problem at all.
2: Right. Because their you components
3: just, are built on the same composable um, Blazor framework and as a result rely on the same data binding and expression parsing mechanisms and so it's going to work the same way that's
0: right yes yeah, so you have components that bind to a source of data and that source of data would
3: just be your csla view model right yes that's correct or, or the csla model itself depending on exactly how you want to construct things yes ne-
0: well, Rocky, uh, it's been amazing talking to you, Egan. It's good to know that you're still out there supporting this stuff and continuing to innovate. And uh, I'm really glad that you and I both share that, and I'm sure Richard does too, share the enthusiasm for the Blazor component model. And and uh, we just want to continue to spread the word. But thanks again, man. This is great stuff.
3: Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree. This Between the WebAssembly client and uh, the container-based servers, I, I'm just the... The world is our oyster. It's so much fun.
0: Yeah, that's true. And productivity is
2: back.
3: (laughs) Oh, so true.
0: And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.